Book 2, Chapter 16 through 35 of Commentaries on the Gallic War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Commentaries on the Gallic War by Julius Caesar. Translated by Thomas Rice Holmes. Book 2, Chapters 16 through 35. After marching for three days through their territory, Caesar learned from prisoners that the Nervii had encamped on the further side of the river called the Sambra, which was not more than ten miles from his camp, and were there awaiting the arrival of the Romans, along with their neighbors the Atrabates and the Viromandui, both of whom they had persuaded to share with them the fortune of war. They were awaiting for the force of the Aduatuki, which was marching to join them, and they had hastily transferred their women, and all who were disqualified by age for fighting to a spot which was rendered inaccessible for an army by marshes. On learning this, Caesar sent on ahead a reconnoitering party, and centurions to choose a good position for a camp. A considerable number of the Belgae who had surrendered, and other Gauls had followed him, and were marching in his train. Some of them, as was afterwards ascertained from prisoners, having observed the order in which our army marched, during the first three days, made their way to the Nervii in the night, and explained to them that each legion was followed by a great quantity of baggage, and that when the foremost legion reached camp and the rest were a long way off, there would be no difficulty in attacking it while the men were burdened with their packs. When it was beaten and its baggage plundered, the rest would not venture to make a stand. One circumstance favored the plan recommended by the men who gave this information. In times past, the Nervii, having no cavalry, to this day they pay no attention to that arm, their whole strength being in infantry, devised the following method of checking their neighbor's cavalry when they made plundering raids into their territory. Lopping off the tops of young saplings and bending them over so that their branches shot out thickly sideways, they planted brambles and briars between. The hedges thus formed, making a barrier like a wall, which made it impossible not only to penetrate, but even to see through. As the march of our column was delayed by these obstacles, the Nervii felt that the preferred advice was worth following. The lie of the ground which our men had selected for their camp may be thus described. A hill sloped evenly down from its summit to the river Sambra already mentioned. From the river there arose a second hill of the same gradient, opposite the other, and directly facing it. The ground was open at the lower end for about four hundred paces, but wooded higher up, so that it was not easy to see through. The enemy were in ambush within the woods, while on the open ground along the river a few cavalry piquets were visible. The depth of the river was about three feet high. Caesar had sent on his cavalry in advance, and was following with all his forces, but the column was formed on a different principle, from which the Belgae had described to the Nervii. Six of Caesar's legions, according to his usual practice when he was approaching an enemy, were advancing in light marching order. Behind them was the baggage train of the entire army, followed by the two newly raised legions, which closed the rear and protected the baggage. Our cavalry, along with the slingers and archers, crossed the river and engaged the enemy's horse. The latter fell back repeatedly into the woods on support of their comrades, and again emerging, charged our men, who dared not pursue them. When they retreated, 
beyond the fringe of the open ground. Meanwhile, the six legions which had come up first proceeded to entrench the camp along the lines which had been marked out. When the head of our baggage train was described by the troops ambushed in the woods, the moment which they had agreed upon for the beginning of the battle, suddenly, in the exact order in which, with mutual exhortations, they formed their line within, the whole force darted forth and swooped down upon our cavalry. Sending them flying in disorder, without any effort, they rushed down to the stream with such incredible swiftness that it seemed as if almost at the same instant they were at the woods, in the river, and now at Sword's Point with our men. As swiftly they pressed up the hill to attack our camp, and the men who were engaged in entrenching it. Caesar had to arrange everything at once, display the red flag, the signal for arming, sound the trumpet, recall the men from the trenches, send for those who had gone further afield in search of wood, form the line, harangue the troops, and give the signal for battle. Want of time and the enemy's onset prevented much of this from being done. Two things, however, served to lighten his difficulties. First, the knowledge and experience of the soldiers, who, as seasoned campaigners, were able to decide for themselves what ought to be done as well as others could tell them. And secondly, the fact that he had forbidden his marshals to leave the works and their respective legions till the camp was entrenched. As the enemy were so close and coming up so fast, they did not wait for orders from Caesar, but made the arrangements which they thought right on their own responsibility. Caesar, after giving indispensable orders, hurried down at haphazard to encourage the soldiers, and came to the Tenth Legion. He spoke briefly, merely urging the men to remember their ancient valor, keep cool, and sustain resolutely the enemy's rush. Then, as the enemy were within range, he gave the signal for action. Going on to another part of the field to encourage the men, he found them already engaged. Time was so short, and the enemy were so ready and eager for battle, that there were not a moment even for putting on helmets and pulling up the covers off shields, much less for fitting on crests. Each man, as he came down from the trenches, fell in by the standard he first caught sight of, wherever he happened to find himself, not wishing to waste the time for action in looking for the men of his company. The army was drawn up as well as time permitted, according to the requirements of the ground, and the slope of the hill, rather than the formation prescribed by tactical rules. The legions were separated, and making head against the enemy at different points, while the view was interrupted, as we have explained before, by hedges of extraordinary thickness. It was therefore impossible to post reserves at fixed points, or to foresee what would be wanted at each and every part of the field. Nor could one man give all the necessary orders. With such adverse conditions, then, the vicissitudes of fortune were naturally various. The men of the Ninth and Tenth Legions were posted on the left of the line. With a volley of javelins they drove the Atrobates, the division which they had encountered, who were breathless and tired from their rapid charge and enfeebled by wounds, from the high ground to the river, and when they attempted to cross, pressed them, sword in hand, and killed a great many while their movements were impeded crossing themselves without hesitation, and pushing on though the slope was against them, when the enemy rallied, they renewed the combat and routed them. Similarly, in another part of the field, two legions, the eleventh and eighth, which were separated from one another, encountered the Virumandui, drove them from the higher ground, 
and maintained the combat right on the banks of the river. Nearly the whole camp, however, in front and on the left was exposed, and the twelfth legion, and at no great distance the seventh, being posted on the right wing, the whole of the Nevii formed in compact column, and led by Boduonatus, the commander-in-chief, advanced rapidly against the position, and while some of them began to move round the legions on their exposed flank, others made for the summit of the hill on which the camp stood. At the same time, our cavalry and the light-armed foot associated with them, who were routed, as I have said, by the enemy's first charge, were retreating to the camp when they came full upon the enemy, and again took to flight in another direction. And the servants, who from the rear gate, situated on the crest of the ridge, had seen our victorious troops cross the river, and had gone out to plunder, looked back, and, seeing the enemy moving about in the camp, precipitately fled. Simultaneously, a babble of voices arose from the men who were coming up with the baggage, and they rushed panic-stricken in different directions. A body of horsemen belonging to the Treveri, whose courage is proverbial among the Gauls, had been sent by their tribe as an auxiliary force to join Caesar. Alarmed by all these signs of panic, seeing that our camp was thronged by the enemy, and that the legions were hard-pressed and all but hemmed in, that servants, horsemen, slingers and numidians had parted company and scattered and were flying in all directions they despaired of our success hastened homewards and told their countrymen that the romans were disastrously defeated and that the enemy had captured their camp and baggage caesar after haranguing the tenth legion had gone off to the right wing he saw that his troops were hard pressed and that the men of the twelfth legion their standards closely massed, were crowded together and preventing each other from fighting. All the centurions of the fourth cohort, as well as the standard-bearer, were killed. The standard was lost. Almost all the centurions of the other cohorts were either killed or wounded, including the chief centurion, Publius Sextius Baculus, the bravest of the brave, who was so exhausted by a number of severe wounds that he could no longer keep his feet. The men had lost all dash and some in the rear ranks had abandoned their posts, and were slinking away from the field and getting out of range, while the enemy were coming up in front in an unbroken stream from below, and closed in on both flanks. In short, the situation was critical, and there was no reserve available. Seeing all this, Caesar, who had come up without a shield, took one from a soldier in the rear rank, stepped forward into the front rank, and, addressing the centurions by name, encouraged the men, and told them to advance, opening their ranks so that they might be able to use their swords more readily. His coming inspired them with hope and gave them new heart, and as every one, even in his extremest peril, was anxious to do his utmost under the eyes of his general, the enemy's onset was in some measure checked. Noticing that the seventh legion, which stood close by, was likewise hard-pressed by the enemy, Caesar told the tribunes to make the legions gradually approach one another, face the enemy on all sides, and advance. This was done, and, as the men now gave each other mutual support, and were not afraid of being taken in rear, they began to offer a more confident resistance, and to fight with more resolution. Meanwhile, the men of the two legions which had brought up the rear and guarded the baggage, having received news of the action, had quickened their pace, and were descried on the brow of the hill by the enemy, and Titus Labienus, who had captured the enemy's camp, 
and observed from the high ground what was going on in ours, sent the tenth legion to the assistance of our men. Realizing from the flight of the cavalry and servants how matters stood, and seeing that camp, legions, and general were in great peril, they put forth their utmost speed. Their arrival wrought such a complete change that, on our side, even men who had lain down severely wounded leaned on their shields and renewed their fight. The servants, noticing the enemy's alarm, rushed upon them, unarmed against armed, while the cavalry, anxious to wipe out the disgrace of their flight by gallant deeds, outvied the legionaries at every point. But the enemy, even in their despair, displayed such heroic courage that, when their foremost ranks had fallen, the next mounted upon their prostrate comrades, and fought standing on their bodies. And when they too were struck down, and the corpses littered in a heap, the survivors hurled, as from a mound, their missiles against our men, and picked up and flung back their javelins. We are not to think, then, that it was in vain that these gallant men dared to cross a broad river, to climb high banks, and to assail a formidable position. These things, in themselves most difficult, had been made easy by their heroism. The battle was over, and the Nervian people, nay, their very name, was brought to the verge of extinction. On hearing the news, the old people, who, as we have said, had taken refuge, along with the women and children, in tidal creeks and swamps, believing that there was nothing to stop the victors, and no security for the vanquished, sent envoys to Caesar with the consent of all the survivors, and surrendered. And, recounting the calamity which had befallen their country, they affirmed that their council had been reduced from six hundred to three, and the number of men capable of bearing arms from sixty thousand to a bare five hundred. Caesar, wishing to establish his character for mercy towards unfortunate suppliants, was careful to shield them from harm, authorized them to retain possession of their territories and strongholds, and commanded their neighbors to abstain, and to make their dependents abstain from maltreating or molesting them. The Aduatuki, whose movements we have already described, were coming with all their forces to the assistance of the Nervii, when, on the announcement of the battle, they turned without halting and went home. Abandoning their other strongholds and fortified posts, they removed all their belongings into one fortress of extraordinary natural strength. All round it presented a line of high rocks and steep declivities, which at one point left a gently sloping approach, not more than two hundred feet wide. This place the garrison had fortified with a double wall of great height, upon which, as a further protection, they were laying stones of great weight, and sharp-pointed beams. The Aduatuki were descended from the Cimbri and Teutoni, who, on their march for our province and Italy, left the stock and baggage which they were unable to drive or carry with them on this side of the Rhine, with some of their number to look after them, and six thousand men to protect them. After the fate of their countrymen, this band was for many years harassed by the neighboring peoples, sometimes attacking, at other times repelling attack. At length they made peace, and with the consent of all the other tribes, selected this district as their abode. Immediately after the arrival of our army, the Aduatuki made a series of sorties from the town, and engaged in skirmishes with our troops. Afterwards, however, finding themselves shut in by a rampart twelve feet high and three miles in extent, with numerous redoubts, they kept inside the stronghold. A line of sheds was formed, and a terrace constructed and seeing a tower in the process of erection some way off, 
they at first jeered and made abusive remarks from the wall at the idea of such a huge machine being erected at such a distance. Did these pygmy Romans, with their feeble hands and puny muscles, the Gauls, as a rule, despise our short stature, contrasting it with their own great height, believe themselves able to mount such a ponderous tower on the wall? When, however, they saw it in motion, and actually approaching the walls, the strange and unwanted spectacle alarmed them, and they sent envoys to Caesar to sue for peace. The envoys, saying that Roman warriors were evidently not left unaided by the gods, since they could propel such towering engines at such a rate, declared themselves ready to surrender unreservedly. One thing only they would beg him not to do, if, happily, in his mercy and forbearance, of which they heard from other peoples, he decided to spare the Atawatuki, not to deprive them of their arms. Almost all their neighbors were their bitter enemies, and jealous of their prowess, and if they surrendered their arms, they could not defend themselves against them. If they were reduced to the alternative, it would be better for them to suffer any fate at the hands of the Romans, rather than be tortured to death by men among whom they were accustomed to hold sway. To this appeal, Caesar replied that he would spare the tribe, not because they deserved mercy, but because it was his wont to be merciful, provided they surrendered before the ram touched the wall. But the question of surrender could not be entertained unless they gave up their arms. He would act as he had acted in the case of the Nervii, and order their neighbors not to molest those who had surrendered to the Roman people. The envoys, after reporting his decision to their principals, professed themselves ready to obey his commands. A great quantity of arms was pitched down from the wall into the trench in front of the town, the heap almost reaching to the top of the wall and of the terrace. And yet, as was afterwards discovered, about one-third was concealed and kept in the town. The gates were then thrown open, and on the same day the garrison entered upon the enjoyment of peace. Towards evening, Caesar ordered the gates to be shut, and the soldiers to leave the town, for fear the inhabitants should suffer any injury at their hands in the night. They had evidently prearranged a plan, believing that, after the capitulation, our troops would withdraw their piquets, or, at any rate, be less vigilant in maintaining them, and taking the arms which they had kept back and concealed, as well as shields made of bark or wattlework, which, being pressed for a time, they had hastily covered with skins. They made a sudden sortie in the third watch, with their whole force at the point where the slope leading up to our entrenchments appeared easiest. The alarm was promptly given, in obedience to orders which Caesar had issued in anticipation, by fire signals, and troops hurried to the point from the nearest redoubts. The enemy's whole hope of safety depended on courage alone, and they fought with the fierce energy which was to be expected from brave men fighting on a forlorn hope, on unfavorable ground, against opponents who were hurling their missiles from rampart and towers. About four thousand were killed, and the rest driven back into the town. The next day, as there was no longer any resistance, the gates were burst open, the soldiers were sent in, and Caesar sold by auction, in one lot, all of the booty of war found in the town. The purchasers reported the number of individuals as fifty-three thousand. At the same time, Caesar was informed by Publius Crassus, whom he had sent with a single legion to the territories of the Veneti, Venelii, Busismi, 
Coriosolites, Esuvii, Alerci, and Redones, maritime tribes whose country reaches the ocean, that all of them had been brought completely under the dominion of the Roman people. These operations resulted in the pacification of the whole Gaul, and the natives were so impressed by the story of the campaign which reached them, that the peoples who dwelt beyond the Rhine sent envoys to Caesar, promising to give hostages and fulfill his commands. Being anxious to get to Italy and Illyricum without delay, he ordered the envoys to return to him at the commencement of the following summer. Quartering his legions for the winter in the territories of the Carnutes, Andes, Torone, and other tribes which were near the theater of the recent campaign, he started for Italy. On the receipt of his dispatches, a thanksgiving service of fifteen days was appointed to celebrate his achievements, an honor which had not hitherto fallen to the lot of anyone. End of Book 2, Chapters 16-35